Okay, yes, I have glasses on. Here's how it went down. Wife at home with sick kids, call neighbors sitting right over here, Blake and Tiffany, and early in the morning, says, hey, can you bring Mike glasses? They bring glasses. They're on my head. Mystery solved. Okay, we good? Well, thank, thank you guys for, for bringing these, by the way. And, um, well, listen, uh, over the last several years, obviously, I'm a, I'm a young dad, been trying to be faithful as much as I can to be able to lead my family and uh, spiritually, and one of the ways that we've sought to do that is is to lead, you know, each night or most nights uh, in family worship together. And uh, so, what we'll do, this is kind of how we do it. You could do it in a lot of different ways. We'll work through kind of a book of scripture, and what we'll do is I'll read a section of scripture, and then what I'll do is I'll explain what the meaning of that text is, and then I get the kids and the rest of the family to be able to help me apply that text. How can we apply this uh, to our lives? That particular truth that God is speaking. There is a problem, and you know this if you do that kind of leading, and that is every once in a while you come to a text that you read it, and as you're reading it, you're like, I have no idea what this text is about. I have no idea what it is I'm going to say when I get to the end of this. And so I've learned that honesty is the best policy, and so I read through, especially those some of those tough passages in the Old Testament. Um, this is how I respond. We'll read it, get done, and I'll go, hmm, well, kids... Here's what we know. We know that all the Bible is inspired by God, and all of it is profitable, and every text has a meaning. I just simply don't know what the meaning of this text is. And so they'll kind of look at me kind of heartbroken, like, Daddy, we thought you knew everything, and, and I have to sit there, and I have to think of something to do quick to be able to encourage their faith in me once again. So I do what any loving, caring father will do. I just move on to the next passage as quickly as I can and hope that I, explain, I can explain the next one, right? And just kind of miss out on it altogether. Well, these passages that I call, um, that I call hmm, passages, those that you read and you're like, what in the world does that mean? Uh, there's a lot of them. And one of them I preached for you just two weeks ago, the story of Jacob and Esau. You probably maybe remember that. And, we were, and even though I kind of knew what it was about at one time, when I read it to my kids, they were asking so many questions. I'm like, I'm not so sure I understand the fullness of what's going on here, especially the story where he sells his birthright, Esau sells his birthright for what amounts to basically a bowl of beans. Well, this morning, we want to give you another passage that I think sometimes when you read, you find yourself saying, Hmm, it's the story of Ehud, Ehud. And, um, and it, it, to be honest with you, there's some of you probably aren't familiar with the story of Ehud at all. Um, you may never even have heard of it before. Some of you may be familiar with it. In fact, you may be very familiar with it. Like when I was, this was one of my favorite stories growing up in the Bible. I just thought it was funny. I mean, fat guy getting a knife, you know, the, the, the teacher trying to find a way to talk about going to the bathroom without upsetting somebody. I thought it was great. Uh, but the truth is, and the Really why I thought it was great, because I thought it was fantastically gross. And for children, fantastically gross equals fantastically awesome, right? And uh, so I would love to hear the story. The truth is, I never really understood the significance of the story. And then as my wife and I were reading through, and I get there, and they ask, I'm like, you know, it's probably time that I need to figure out what this thing means. And so what we're going to do is we're just going to have family worship today. Sound good? We're all kind of gathering around. You don't have to sit on the floor or anything, all right? And uh, uh, we're just going to have family worship. And what I hope to do is begin to kind of unpack this text. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to just share, give some background as we normally do. I'm going to kind of walk through the text, explain the story, then try to tell you what I believe the point of it is, and then spend the last couple moments uh, in just specifically of seeing how we can apply God's truth to our life. So let me begin, first of all, uh, by giving you a little bit 
uh, of background, a little bit of context for our story. The book of Judges, it really takes place, it begins at the end of the death of Joshua and continues all the way up to the beginning of the time of the monarchy and the time of Samuel. So it really covers a pretty wide span of time. But what you need to know is God's people were perpetually disobedient to God throughout all of these years. They continued to sin against God time and time again. And so what we find is, even in the book of Judges, uh, he keeps saying the same phrase over and over again. He says, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That's another way of saying that people were being disobedient to God. The Bible says that there is a way that seems right to man, but the truth is it ultimately leads to destruction. And so oftentimes we can think we're on the right track. We can think we're doing the right thing, but in all actuality, it's completely contrary to the will of God for our lives. And so they were living in sin. And so what we find is it's interesting about this particular book. It actually makes it hard to preach all the way through it because it basically follows the same pattern every single story in it. Every story with every judge has four major parts. It begins with the people, four things. It begins with the people disobeying God. Then what we see in the story is that God disciplines his people by rising up a pagan king and a pagan nation and then really putting some whooping on the Israelites. The third part that we see in here is this, is that the people cry out for mercy to God. And then the fourth stage that we see, or the fourth step that we see there, is that God delivers his people by raising up a deliverer or rescuer or savior. And this happens in every single one of the stories. In fact, it's it follows the same pattern and the story that I want to teach for you this morning. Now, what I'm going to do is I'm going to use those four things just to help us work and to be able to tell this story, okay? So let's look at the first idea there, the people rebelling against God. We see it in verse 12. Notice verse 12. The Bible says, And the people of Israel again said, uh, did what was evil in the sight of God. I want you to emphasize and see the word. You got your Bibles? Yes? See the word again, again. Isn't it interesting the hard-heartedness and the hard-headedness of God's people that we can't get it through our thick skull sometimes that it never benefits to continue in sin, amen? We learn, we sin, we do the wrong thing, God restores us, and for whatever reason, oftentimes we go back and do the same exact thinking, thinking there's going to be ultimately a different outcome. And the scriptures say, here they are doing the same thing again. Well, what happens when God's children disobey? God brings discipline, at least according to the New Testament. And we see the reality of that in the Old Testament. So we see next, we see God discipline his people by raising up a foreign nation. The Bible says, The Lord strengthened Elgon, the king of Moab, against Israel because they had done what was evil in the sight of, God, of the Lord. And he gathered to himself the Ammonites and the Amalekites. And he went and he defeated Israel. And they took possession of the city of Palms. And the people of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, 18 years. Now, so God disciplines them. They come in, they, 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 they overpower them, and now they are held captive by the king of Moabite and the Moabites. And so what's happening here? Well, stop and think about it for a moment. Would you agree that God's people, his children, are not exempt from suffering in this world? Would you, would you agree? 
kind of agree, or where are you living, right? You must not live where I live. Okay, so there is suffering, and so we're not exempt from it. One of the ways, though, that we suffer is because we're believers in Jesus Christ. It's called suffering for righteousness' sake. In other words, it's not that you're doing something wrong, it's that you're doing something right. Everybody who has lost their lives uh, by giving a profession of faith around the world, every martyr who's ever lived, didn't die because they sinned. They died because they were willing to be obedient even to the point of death. You got that? That is suffering for the sake of righteousness. And God's people are always going to find themselves in that place. However, we know there's another type of suffering as well, don't we? And that is that we suffer because of the wrong decisions and the sin that we choose to commit against God. We suffer and we struggle in, in, in all kinds of difficulty. We find ourselves, how many of you would, can look at your life and you could sit there and say, man, because of sin in my life, that's why I struggled through that period of time. That's, that's why I put myself in such a bad situation. It was a direct cause of my particular sin inside of my life. All of us can identify that, all right? Say amen. And so this is exactly where the Israelites are. They're in, they are being captive and held captive by these oppressors at this time, and they're suffering greatly. And the type of suffering that they do is that they're in poverty. What they're having to do is they're having to take huge sums of food. I don't know how often, but often, and they're having to give it to the king, which means most of what they work for is gone. It's given to the king, and they're left with very little. So they are eking out a meager existence, just trying to live and trying to survive. They're suffering greatly. Now, let's look at these last two parts here. Uh, the first, of course, is that the people sin against God. The second is that God disciplines his people. The third, then, is that eventually God's people cry out for mercy. Isn't that right? You finally cry. After 18 years, they cry, uncle. To God. And we see that. It says the peoples uh, in, in verses 15, says, verse 15, then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. Notice the word then. What the author is doing is he's letting us know the progression of events. He says they sinned, God disciplined, but they suffered for 18 years before they cried out for the mercy of God. You know what this tells me? It never ceases to amaze me how willing we are to suffer great things for a terribly long time, all because we're unwilling to bend the knee in submission to Christ. I mean, in our own hearts, we sit there and go, I know why I'm in this particular predicament. I know why I'm struggling. I know why I'm suffering. But what we do is we sit back and we say to ourselves, hey, listen, no, I'm just going to stay here. Isn't it a, have you felt that in you? Have you felt that pressure in you? And yet we can, we can suffer for so long and so hard, and God just says, man, relent, repent, give up, submit to me. This is what I want from you. And so this, they finally do. They finally submit to him. And then notice, notice God does raise up a deliverer, and he's introduced here. His name is Ehud, the son of Gera, the Benjaminite, a left-handed man. Now, I don't know if there's anywhere in Scripture where somebody's described as a left-handed man, all right? But when you know somebody as the left-handed man, all right, you know that something's up. Okay, you got that, right? And so the left-handed man, we know that the author's, this is significant. He's probably going to come up, and there's going to be some significance there as well. Well, he is a left-handed man, but he's also a leader. The Scriptures say it a little bit further down within the text. And we see him leading a delegation that comes to bring tribute to King Eglon. So he's bringing all of this produce to be able to give to the king um, at this particular time. And so he's leading the people. And then the Bible says something else about him. Look at verse 15. 
It says in verse, in verse 16, the Bible says, And Ehud made for himself a sword with two edges, a cubing in length, and he bound it on his right thigh under his clothes, and he presented the tribute of Eglon, king of Moab. Now, Eglon was a very fat man. Now, these are very interesting uh, adjectives to be using for people, is it not? So he, try to track with me. Here you have a lefty who is a leader, who is ticked off because basically this big king, big fat king, is taking his food. He goes and makes a sword, all right? And what does he do? He makes a big sword. It's 18 inches long, or as the great theologian Crocodile Dundee would say, now that's a knife, right? And so he gets this thing, and then all of, all of a sudden, he's going before the king, and the king is very fat, okay? You don't have to be the sharpest knife in the drawer, pun intended, uh, to know kind of what's going to happen here, right? So let's see exactly what happens. Verse 18. The Bible says, and when Ehud had finished presenting the tribute, he sent away the people who carried the tribute. And be, but he himself turned back at the idols near Gilgal and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. And he commanded, silence. And all his attendants went out from his presence. Uh-oh, not good. And Ehud came to him, and as he was sitting alone in his cool roof chamber, and Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. And he arose from his seat, and Ahud reached with his left hand, took the sword from his right thigh, and he thrust it into the belly. And the hilt also went in after the blade, for he did not pull the sword out of his belly, and the dung came out. Then Ahud went out into the porch, and he closed the roof chamber behind him and locked him. Now listen, when I'm reading this to the kids, it's at this moment that I realize I have no idea where this thing is going. I have no understanding of what's going on. So let me tell you, in my research, I've gone through hermeneutics, you know, do the doctoral thing, you know, in preaching, and they teach even more hermeneutics of how to understand the text of Scripture. And so we're looking there, and so I bypassed all that and just went to commentaries, okay? Big mistake, all right? So I just went to commentaries, and I said, well, let me see what I have on Judges. Not a whole lot. So I start just kind of picking up commentaries in the bookstore. And so... Um, as I'm in the bookstore, I didn't buy them. I, I'm confessing. I'm coming clean. And so I'm looking through them. And so here's how some different authors have chosen to kind of uh, uh, deal with this. Um, first of all, some people might interpret this uh, allegorically. Uh, and basically what that means is in sy symbolically. They're trying to look at the text, and they're looking for different things. And they're like, ooh, you know, the sword represents this, and that, and his, and his fat represents that. Well, well let me suggest, this is kind of how it looks. Uh, one commentator ultimately said this. He said, look, just as that man had a sword, you've got to remember Ephesians chapter 6. There is described, you know, the, 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 the whole armor of God. And there he had what? He had the sword. We only have one offensive weapon, and it's pulling it out, and it's the sword of the Spirit. And the sword. Remember he said, I've got a message from God from you. And what did he do? He slew him with the sword. Amen. And then you guys are like, is this a trick question, right? Am I supposed to amen there? And then another one would say, you know, or what we could ultimately do is we could maybe go to Hebrews chapter 4. A great scripture, he says, the word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Man, what a great, man, what great imagery. Now that will preach, right? I mean, there it is, man, the word of God, it will cut 
you know, it divides. And there he is. Remember, it said two-edged sword. He has a two-edged sword. And, he, and so we can go there. And that sounds all good. And that will probably preach. It just probably ought not to. Okay? Uh, so let me explain something just very simple. When it's a narrative and it's telling you something that's actually happened, a sword is a sword and fat is fat. You guys got that? All right, look, I'm your pastor. I'm training you. All right, here we go. Um, and what did you learn today? Sword is sword. Fat is fat, mom. Fat is fat. That's what we learned in church today. Amen. All right, here's a second way that we kind of deal with this. And I think that this is maybe less abrasive, but it's probably more common. We could read this and then we moralize the text. We moralize the text, right? What kind of good moral things can we learn from this? Listen, here's the lesson. Don't be like Ahud. You don't want to be like Ahud. Why? Because Ahud was bitter, and he allowed bitterness to build in his heart, and he had a root of bitterness. And if you have a root of bitterness, ultimately what you're going to do is give tribute to the king. You're going to make a knife, become a knife maker, and you're going to end up killing somebody who's fat. That's, so don't be bitter. That's the whole point of that. Don't be like him. And some people would say, maybe look at Eglon and sit there and say, ultimately, no, we, we need to not be like Eglon because Eglon only came in danger when he was by himself. And as believers, this Christian life was never meant to go by yourself. You see, when you're by yourself, that's when the enemy attacks. That's when he comes and he, and he digs his, his sword into you. See, these are all different types of ways that people could possibly explain. Now, we laugh, but some of you guys are the same ones that you hear that preaching and you sit back and go, wow. That guy really, really sees a lot in the text of Scripture. How did he get that out of there? He got that out of there because he put it in there when you weren't looking. That's, that's how he got it out of there, right? And so other people, how do we approach it? The way that we ultimately approach the text, I think, is this way. I think we kind of look at it and we just do like I did. We just skip over it. And that's what some commentators did. I'm sitting there going, man, and, and commentators do this all the time. You go to the commentary and you're like, man, I need some help with this. I need a godly man. And they don't even mention the text. And you're like, what good is this? There's something wrong. There's pages missing. They're like, they didn't want to touch it. And here's why sometimes. Because people will sit there and there's words like dung and there's blood and there's sword. And, and there's really some weird ethical things going on. I mean, this is a man killing a king. You guys got that, right? And so these things are hard sometimes. And so sometimes we feel like maybe the word needs to be above this a little bit. Maybe it needs to be higher that, that these kind of passages aren't worthy of the text of Scripture. And so sometimes we just kind of ignore it altogether. But for us, here at Celebration, it's, we can't do that. And the reason we can't do it is because we're people of the book, amen? And we do believe that all of the word of God is inspired by God and it is profitable not only for life and eternal life, but also profitable for growth in image and likeness of Christ Jesus. We believe that that's how the God uses his word. So you sit there and say, well, Brother Mike, what is this all about? It's very simple, and you might even be let down. But let me, let me just tell you what I think it is. I think the key verse, and this is important, the key verse is found in verse 15. Would you look at that just for a second? Verse 15 says, then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, and notice this, and the Lord raised up for them a deliverer. Let me give you kind of a little bit of breakdown, and I'm going to unpack this statement. Here's an overview of what I think it's teaching. God delights in helping his people in the midst of their troubles. God delights in helping his people in the midst of their troubles, even when those troubles are brought on by themselves. 
And let me go ahead and just kind of unpack this a little bit. Some of you needed to hear this message yesterday. Some of you need it today, and I guarantee the rest of you are going to need it tomorrow because we are not exempt from suffering and difficulty in our life. But here's the encouraging word. Do you want to hear it? God cares for you. God cares for you. He cares that you're suffering. See, I don't know if you're like me, but there's some times that I can have a little pity party for myself and become self-centered, but sometimes there's just an actual feeling that I'm not sure that anybody cares. You ever been there before? You can be in a whole room full of people, and you can be packed, but you can feel as lonely as you have ever felt in your life. And there you are, and you are concerned, and you are worried, and you're suffering. And the truth is that some of you here are just suffering from no fault of your own. You've either been abandoned, maybe by a spouse, you've, or you're in a relationship that is abusive, or, or, or whatever it is. There's, maybe your children are rebelling, and it's causing all kinds of stress and strife and hurt inside of your life. Here's what he's trying to say. He says, hey, listen, when you sit back and think that nobody cares, that is a, you are buying into a lie because there is at least one person that cares, and he's not just anybody. He is your God that cares for you. He cares what's going on in your life and the hurt that you're in right now. And so, listen to this. It's not only that he cares, but another thing that we see in the Word of God is that he hears. That he hears. Have you ever been in the place where you're praying, but man, you don't even know if the prayer is going through the roof? You feel like it's bouncing back down? You're like, is this prayer going anywhere? I'm just praying and it just keeps shooting back at me. Is, is anything ultimately happening in there? Listen to me. Listen to what, submit yourself to the authority of the word. God hears your prayer. He hears what it is that you are ultimately saying. And here's the deal. You know, what amazes me, moms, you amaze me. I mean, uh, you know, think, I don't know how you do it. Look, um, we homeschool. We're one of those weird people, okay, uh, for now anyway. And uh, maybe we'll get cool and not do it. But anyway, um, we, we, um, my, my day off is Friday, right? So oftentimes we'll go. So you know what that means. That means kids, family, event, going with other families, all women, children, and Mike. You, you get that, right? So we go to, because Mike's the only guy with Friday off. So, so we go to the park. And so we're there at the park, and, and, um, and there's 20 women. And some of you, some of the women are here, and our church loves to be fruitful and multiply. Amen. All right, we've, we've got them everywhere. And so, um, so what happens is there's 20 women, and most of them from our church, and then there's 120 children, okay, all in this one park, and then there's Mike. And so I'm a worrier. I'm a worry war. I can't help it. But these kids are doing things. I'm like, no, I don't think, I, no, I, uh, not my kid. It's okay. It's all right. Wait, uh, now, you are my kid. Quit doing that. All right? So you, you kind of get into this idea. And what's amazing, I'm, I'm, I'm not trying to be belittling but it is mind-boggling, all the noise that's going on. I mean, it is, I mean, the kids are screaming, yelling, throwing, doing everything. And the wives are having these conversations. And I'm thinking, nobody is looking at this disaster. Nobody's looking over here. And what ends up happening, one kid out of 120 gets hurt. And that child's mother hears it instantly in response. How did she do that? She knows the sound and the cries of her children. God knows the sounds and the cries of his children. Do you understand that? Don't sit back and think that God doesn't hear you in your pain. He hears you in your pain. God cares. God hears. And let me, let me say this. Uh, God delights. 
I'm not saying that he delights in your pain, in your trouble, but here's what he delights in. He delights in getting involved in your hurt and helping you. He loves to come along and help you with what it is that you have. He delights. You know what that means? It doesn't mean that it's just putting them off going, oh, here we go again. I got to go in and get this problem and fix this problem for Mike again. No, he sits there and goes, I get to come in and he's invited me in and now I'm going to help him with the mess that's on his hands. That's an awesome thing. How encouraging is that for folks that are suffering this morning? How many people who sit there and you look at your life and go, man, my life is an absolute wreck. And the truth is, here's what I would say. I would say that as we look at that and as we look at those ideas, it's easy for us to see how God would have compassion on those who are victims and who are suffering, right? As I said before, the spouse who's been abandoned, the child who's been abandoned by their parents, we think of the people who have been done wrong, and we sit there and it's so encouraging to think of God going and help those who have been sinned against But let me say something. That's not what's amazing about this passage. What's amazing about this passage is not that God will help those who are victims of sin. What's amazing about this passage is that God hears and God cares and God wants to help those who sinned. Not just those who have been sinned against, but those who have sinned against other people God wants to help them in the mess that they've made out of their life. Do you understand the significance of this? Because you and I don't normally think this way. Here's how I normally think. God, people are mad at me or this person's mad at me or whatever it is. God, I know that you know my pain. I know you know my suffering. Now, God, be there with me. And there is no doubt in my mind that God's gonna be there for me. Let me tell you when I struggle is when I'm the boogeyman, when I'm the sinner, when I'm the one who has caused the pain, and I'm the one who's messed up my life. When I'm the one who's messed up my life because of the sinful decisions that I make, it's then that it's very hard for me to think of a God who is willing, able, and wanting to be able to help me out. So when I make a wreck of my life, often I don't even turn to him. I sit there and say, man, I'm deserving of this. I really need to be able to bring on all these difficulties on my life, and I deserve it, and I've done all, everything that is wrong. But what is amazing is God is sitting there saying, hey, man, I'm not only there for the innocent, I'm there for the guilty. I have to be there for the guilty. That's the gospel. The gospel is that God sends and extends his grace to the guilty. And then what he does is he comes inside of their life and the very mess that they have made, he gets in and he says, I delight in helping you. That's grace. That's amazing, incredible grace. Some of you are sitting here and you're going, I made too much of a mess of my life. God will hear you. God cares for you. He will extend grace. It's mind-boggling. Now, I I need to make sure that I'm very clear about something. I don't want some of you who are sitting there willfully sinning and knowing that you're about to do something wrong, take this approach. Hey, it's okay, because where sin abides, grace abounds all the more. Where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. I'm gonna do this because I know on the other side of this that God is going to forgive me. I cannot tell you how many conversations I have had in 20 years of ministry of people standing straight-faced across from me saying, I'm going to do exactly what I know that is wrong, and it's okay because I believe that God will ultimately forgive me. And I shudder because I sit there and I have to say to them in all clarity and straightforward and say, you've got much bigger problems than you ever thought you had. You think 
that your problem is this. Your problem is, I don't even know where you are with God. Because the child of God understands the price that it took for him to be forgiven and restored. It took the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. He doesn't sit there and go, I'll just smack the blood wherever. I'll just splatter it wherever. There's a sin, I'll just douse it wherever. No, the believer in Jesus Christ has truly been born again. He finds the blood of Jesus precious. And even though he struggles and he fights and everything else, he does not demean the blood of Jesus Christ by sitting there and saying, well, God will forgive me, no big deal. That's not who I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is a person, no matter how far you've gone, no matter how deep you've done, no matter what wreck that you have in your life, when you truly repent and turn back to God and go, God, I need your help. I've done what is wrong. God cares, he hears, and he revels and loves and delights in coming and helping you. I'm not saying that he's gonna make it all go away instantaneously. I'm not saying if you could just gear yourself up for enough faith that all the problems will go away and melt away. But what I am saying is that God will either completely take it away, but what, he may not take it all away, but he will get in the problem with you and he will sustain you. And over a long period of time, make that which is wrong right. Now, let me tell you one more thing that is so amazing about this. What's amazing about this story is that there, it's humorous. Did, have you noticed that? Did anybody notice that's humorous? As a kid, I thought it was hilarious. I mean, anytime you got a big guy's belly, you know, moving like a big bowl of jelly. I mean, that's funny, right? Santa thought it was funny. He's laughing all the time, right? And so, so I thought it was funny. Swords were funny. You know, excrement, for whatever reason, is funny. I don't know why that is. But all these things are just kind of funny and humorous. And stop and think just for a moment that when this is written, why was it written in a humorous way? You say, you say, where is it humorous? Look, it's not only that, but did you notice what happened in verse 24? Just follow with me for a second. So the Bible says, when he had gone, the servants came, and when they saw that the doors of the roof, uh, roof chamber were locked, they said, uh, surely he is relieving himself in the closet of the cool chamber. Now, listen, I don't want to use... Um, bad words and everything else from the pulpit. I'm just reading the text here. Um, um, it's called scatology. When, when, when preachers use bathroom humor, it's called scatology. There you go. You learned a word, okay? And I'm not using that here. That's just what's happening. When they look back at this time, do you understand what's happening here? The guys are like, dude, he's been there a long time. What do you think's going on? Dude, he must be in the bathroom. Really? Well, dude, he's been in there for a long time. What's going on? I don't know. Does anybody know what the king ate last night? He ate oysters. You know, those oysters just kind of tear him up. Okay, well, let's give him a little bit longer. Time goes by. They wait so long, and they're so troubled by what's going on. It's the Bible says that they're ultimately embarrassed of it. You see that? They're embarrassed of what's going on. And so, when, when look, this is your his, say this is your history, and you go forward, and you move back, and you look at the life of this, and you start laughing at the story. Why are you laughing? Why, why did he put it in there? Here's... Let me, let me just try to cut straight to the case. Here's what I think is going on. I think what's going on is the reason that you would laugh when you read, when the Jews would go back and read this story, they wouldn't be laughing about their sin and their hard-heartedness. They'd be laughing because of the joy of God's ability to deliver and help in a time of need, even when they got themselves in the same problem. It's kind of like this. There's a, there's a, there's a buddy of mine in, in college. His name is Steve. Great name, right? Steve. And Steve bugged me because me growing up, and especially when I was in college, um, I was your, your typical Pharisee. And, um, and so, you know, I'd grown up, 
you know, I didn't drink, smoke, or chew, or run around with those who do. So therefore, I was much more um, acceptable to God because of my righteousness. And uh, you know, I'm being facetious, of course. And so what happens is this, is that, that, that Steve bugged me because Steve did all the things that really, to be honest with you, I wanted to do, but I was afraid to do. And so he did all these things, and so I just would nail him because he would laugh about what he did. Dude, man, I remember, man. I remember I was so drunk, man. I, I just didn't know what was going on. He goes, three days would go by, and I'd get up, and he would just laugh at it. And he would laugh kind of at all these different things that he was doing. And one day, man, I called him, like a true Pharisee, I called him, I called him under the carpet. I sat there and said, bro, you are not serious about your sin. You know, brother, you were doing all those things. How can you look back on all of that and take pleasure? Did it, were you ever broken over that sin? Why aren't you still broken? Because can I share something with you? This is exactly how many of us feel. We feel like once God has forgiven us 10, 20, 30 years later, somehow we still have to feel bad about what we ultimately did. That's not the God we serve. God didn't write these scriptures for them to look back to be able to hold their sin over their head. So he said, what did he do? Well, here's what Steve said. Steve came over to me and he goes, hey, bro, I am so sorry. He goes, you've got me all wrong. I'm sorry that I've conveyed the wrong message. Hey, bro, I laugh about that time of my life, not because I'm laughing at sin. He said, there was a day that I was overwhelmed by my guilt and shame before God, and it's what caused me to call on him and call on his help and call on his grace. And that is the life that God, I went through, that God eventually saved my soul, and I cried out for mercy. He goes, bro, when I'm looking back and I'm laughing, I'm not laughing at what I did. He goes, I'm looking back and laughing because of the joy of what God ultimately saved me out of. He goes, let me tell you something, Mike. He goes, when, you, when you've been where I've been, you understand that there may be great weeping at night, but with Jesus, joy comes in the morning. That's awesome. That's incredible. I mean, it doesn't get any better than that, right? And so for some of you, you're sitting here and you're thinking, well, God, will you help me? Not only will he hear you, and not only does he care for you, and not only does he take delight and to be able to help you, and he will help you, he will restore and show his grace in your life in such a way that what you and your husband or you and your child or you and a friend or whoever it is that's ripping you apart that you think you can't go on any further, one day you will look back and enjoy, you will laugh. That's amazing grace. Jesus, we come to you. And God, there were some who just need to live in this grace, need to know your grace. They need to understand your grace for them. God, there were those that have never tasted of it, never tasted of salvation, never have repented and placed their whole, whole weight of their lives in existence in the person of Jesus Christ. They've never done that. God, that's not a reality for them. God, I pray that it will be a reality today. I pray that they will understand there's no such thing as being too sinful for God. But God, on the other side, I pray that those who think that they are inherently good, that they will be so wracked with the guilt of their sin that they will see themselves who, for who they are. Only then can they call, cry out for mercy and see your infinite worth. I pray that both those things happen today. But God, there are those who are here. God, some are suffering for no fault of their own. That message applies to them for sure. God, but I know at the same exact time, there are those that you want to extend your grace and mercy to those who have made a wreck of their life and it's their own fault. Let them revel in your grace. Let them know what kind of God you are. 
Let him depend fully and completely on you. Jesus, if any need to come to faith in Jesus, and I know there are, where they have the boldness to be able to come, I'd love to talk with them. Our staff would love to talk with them to make sure they understand what salvation is all about. God, I want to open up this altar for some to just come and pray. God, we're going to sing. Would some just stand and sing for your glory? God, just wash us 